0: Thank you, Julia, now turn to Haggai, Haggai, and Haggai, and we're going to read from page 948 in the Church Bibles, Haggai chapter 1, Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them into a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shaltiel, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, And the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God on the twenty-fourth day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Keep your Bible open. We're going to look at that in just a moment or two. Before we do that, though, may I just mention one other important announcement. Uh, we have been thinking about the home groups and how we can best organize and plan the home groups and looking to the future and it's become clear that there are a number who would prefer to have a home group during the day. It's got nothing to do with age or sex. It's just whether you're available during the day. And if you would prefer to be part of a home group that takes pl- is going to take place during the day, could you just let us know We actually don't want to say which day or what time because the time and the day will be sorted out amongst those who are going to be part of that group, which is the most convenient. And on the table over there, you'll see some of these little slips like this. It says on it, Abbey Church Home Groups. And if you would like to be notified or you're interested in, doesn't mean to say you're committed to it yet about a possibility of a home group and a daytime group, rather than an evening group, just fill in your name on here, please, and pop it in the box that's there marked home groups, question mark. Okay? Not complicated. So just fill it in and let us know, and then we can talk it over if you prefer to be one of those home groups that meet during the day. And it might mean that there's a few adjustments that need to be made in some of the other groups, but... um, We're not planning a wholesale reorganization of everything, but it might just mean a few minor adjustments here and there. But that's a helpful thing. Thanks very much. The setting is about 520 BC, before Christ, in Jerusalem. The scene is the principal characters, actually, of the drama that we've been reading about are 50,000 repatriated Jews who have come back from being in captivity in Babylon and they have been allowed to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple in particular. Jerusalem had been destroyed and the temple had been destroyed in the battle that took the people off into Babylon as slaves. It's therefore, the book of Haggai is therefore what we might refer to as a post- Exile prophet, that means it comes after they were carried off into exile. Hosea and Joel, we were talking about the last two weeks, were before the exile. And this is now post-exile, though though some of them we're not too sure of the date, particularly Joel. This one it's very clear, and we can almost identify the actual day that they're talking about, the day in which this happened. The temple had been devastated in the fighting that had taken place when Nebuchadnezzar had attacked with his army and carried all the people off as slaves into Babylon. The buildings had been pulled down, everything that was wooden had been burned, and uh, everything was just rubble, nothing much was left. But after several decades, 70 years, seven decades for the first group, they were in different groups, the first deportees, the Jews were given the chance to go back into Jerusalem, out of captivity, to rebuild the city, and to rebuild the temple. And uh, this decree that allowed them to go back was made by King Cyrus, who, not immediately, but after a while, had taken Nebuchadnezzar's place. Nebuchadnezzar carried them off as slaves, but Cyrus... In uh, great battles and so on eventually took over and he was the one who allowed them to go back he had conquered Babylon and he gave this decree in favor of the Jews going back and in favor of other groups to be released as well the decree was not signed because Cyrus was a sort of Old Testament believer or a God fearer but on his part it was smart politics He just wanted to keep everybody happy. And he thought, maybe I could even keep the gods happy. So he thought, if I let them go and rebuild their temple, that would be great. And other people can go and rebuild their temples in other places. And uh, he let let them go. And so 50,000 accepted the offer on the first wave of people that went back to Jerusalem to rebuild. That was phase one. When they entered Jerusalem eventually, they were shocked. The place was awful. It was just rubble and charred timbers. Nothing much remained of what had been the city of the people of God, the joy of the nations, it was called. Nothing much was left, and they were shocked. It was a very traumatic thing for them to return there was a mixture in their hearts of a sort of surging hope that they're going back and they're going to rebuild the temple and everything would return to the worship of God with God at the center and they could go back to the the security of their own land and so on. That hope on one heart, in one part of their hearts, but on the other half was horror at what they found when they came back. I suppose a modern parallel... Not quite the same, but a modern parallel would be when the Jews went back in nineteen forty eight into Jerusalem and so on. There was this huge surge of joy and rejoicing, and if you've seen films of it, you know there were singing and there was dancing in the streets and so on as they went back. But there was it was highly emotional. And that's the sort of scene that took place here, two thousand five hundred years ago from where we are now. As I said, they went with the blessing of Cyrus, who was setting up an expansionist plan. In fact, it was the biggest expansionist plan that any world dictator had ever undertaken. His aim was to conquer the whole world, and he was a remarkable um, dictator and leader, biggest empire in history. But as I say, he let these 50,000 as the first phase go back. And when they went back, he gave them back some of the gold and silver vessels that had been taken from the temple when Nebuchadnezzar had invaded and carried them off. 5,000 gold and silver vessels from the temple. They were now returned. But as I said, when they got back, they were appalled at what they found, the city in ruins, the temple in ruins. As soon as they got there, the first thing they did not unnaturally, was to build shelters for themselves, somewhere to live for themselves. Ezra, it says in that chapter that we read, in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, then they assembled as one man in Jerusalem. I think that means they were of one heart and one mind. They knew what they were there for, and they met together as one, one person and started worshipping the, the, the Lord back in Jerusalem. The temple was not yet rebuilt, of course, in fact, it says that the foundations were not even laid, but at least the worship started in some measure, and uh, they were really excited about what was going to take place. They were so anxious to worship. And amid tremendous, tumultuous scenes of joy, the worship started. Did you notice that we read that they, they were filled with singing and rejoicing, and tears at the same time. And the noise was so great, it could be heard for miles around. And you couldn't really uh, distinguish the weeping from the rejoicing. It wasn't a quiet little meditation that took place. Being Jews, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if they were dancing and uh, whooping around the place as they all took place in great joy. I can imagine you still see them sometimes in, in Jerusalem, dancing in long lines, you know, in conga, almost like congas, you know, as they go around Jerusalem, singing and rejoicing at what was taking place. So they started work with the worship of the Lord. About one year into the official reconstruction program, they began to do the. Preliminary work for the temple itself. And we read that uh, how they began to get that going, and we read it in Ezra chapter three. But amidst all this ecstasy, this rejoicing, this happiness, amid it all, they amidst it all they began to face difficulties. Problems arose. During the 70 years that they'd been off as slaves in Babylon, other tribes and other peoples had moved in and taken over and around Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, they'd set up their towns and villages and so on. And when the people of God returned, not unnaturally, they began to say, hey, wait a minute, this is our home. Who are you coming and kicking us out? Doesn't it ring a few bells? Think of the Palestinians. And the Jews, uh, the Jews going back to Israel. And not unnaturally, they said, this is our place. And opposition arose against these people of God coming back to rebuild the city. All sorts of different groups. Sanballat, who I won't go into right now. But soon, when that opposition arose, soon discouragement began to fill the hearts of the people of God. And they began to find the way hard and the way difficult until eventually they became so disheartened, so discouraged by what they found, that the work of rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple in particular, ground to a halt. And for 16 years, nothing happened on the temple. 16 years. Now, you don't really need me to say that there are enormous number of parallels with us here at Abbey this morning. Don't you think? There are so many for us. At this point in time, it was probably, if we get our calculations right, the 29th of August, 520 B.C. That's why I say this prophecy, you can date almost to the day, the 29th of August, 520 B.C. Of course, their months were not quite the same as ours, so it's not quite just a matter of swapping names, but uh, working it out, that's probably what it was. And um, at that point, on that day, Haggai burst onto the scene with a message. And he burst into this picture of discouragement and shouts, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Listen, God is saying something to you. Then in verse 3 it says, The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. And it says, If the word came through Haggai, the word of the Lord came through Haggai. In verse 1, chapter 2, in verse 10 it says, The 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Verse 20 of that chapter, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. And repeatedly it said, this is God's word, the word of the Lord came to these people. Now the question is, what was that word? In the midst of all that we've talked about, what was the word that God brought to these people? Well, you can sum it up in one word. Repentance. Repentance. First of all, notice the need for repentance. They had things for which they needed to repent. And to be honest, all of us here have things for which we need to repent. We as believers should live in the context of repentance day by day. It's not something that comes to us and say, well, I need to repent and become a Christian and that's it. Living in an attitude of repentance is required of us. Search me, O God. And know my heart today. Try me, O Lord, and see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That's how King David put it. And words of that effect should be the words that we constantly utter. Lord, here I am. I know that I'm not what I should be. I want to turn from those things that displease you or that are not worthy of you search my heart and make me into the person you want me to be. That should be our daily attitude. And these people were being called to repentance. You know, it's so easy for us to nurture unconfessed sin. So easy. Because, well, the Puritans used to talk about our darling sins. And sometimes our sins are our darling sins, the things that we delight in the things that we really like doing. Robert Murray McCheney, the Scottish minister who was so greatly used of God, a remarkable man. You want to read his story sometime. Robert Murray McCheney once prayed, Lord, make me as holy as it is possible for a redeemed sinner to be. This is a call to put things right. And these people were being called by God to do that. And repentance is something that we need to think about perhaps more than we do. Repentance is always personal. It's not just we or as a church, but you, that I need to repent. I need to look at my life and repent. It's Personal. It's also something that we are committing ourselves to in the sense that it's, it's permanent. It's bringing about a change because of repentance that is not something, well, I won't do it today, but tomorrow it might be a different matter. It's a permanent commitment. It's permanent. It's often very painful because, as I said, we sometimes, the things from which we need to repent are our darling sins. And it's also a profitable thing to do. It restores our relationship with the Lord. So these people were being called to repentance. Now, why was it necessary for the people in Haggai's day to repent? Two things. Make it easy for you. They both begin with the letter L. The first thing is lethargy. Lethargy. Listen, look at verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be rebuilt a bad time economically to start building anything you don't start building a new project after a recession or during a recession that's the sort of attitude they had it's going to cost us so much why don't we wait till we're sort of feeling a bit better off and the cer- economic circumstances are a bit more conducive to building can not you hear them saying that and perhaps you can hear them saying too Look, this is the Lord's house we're talking about here. And um, the Lord surely only deserves the very best. And if we can't do the very best, well, don't let's even start. Let's do anything. If we haven't got plenty so that we can do the very best in every area, well, don't let's do it at all. Now, it's true that the Lord does deserve the best, but it's the best that we can do at that time. You can imagine the people saying that. And God says to them, look, what you're saying is rubbish. That's not true. Verse 9, he says, Why did I, what you sowed turned out to be little and brought home? I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, here is what it is, because of my house which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. The problem with them was not actually that they didn't have the money that they didn't have the resources to do the work, but they were spending it on themselves. They were each one were concerned at their own things. This is, did you notice the contrast in verse 9? In one phrase it says, my house, and the next phrase it says, but your house. My house remains ruined, but your houses, you're constantly remodeling them and doing extensions and so on and so on and so on. Nothing wrong with any of those things, but... Their attitude was wrong. Their balance was wrong. C.T. Studd, who was captain of England in cric- uh, for cricket and so on, he was converted to Jesus Christ in 1878. And uh, he went as a China- missionary to China in 1885. And when he returned from that, um, he went round, he went, visited the doctors, and the doctors, because he was ill, the, vi- the doctors said that he was, and this was their quote, he was a museum of diseases. <laughs> when he came back. He was so sick. And because of that, and because of who he was, none of the missionary societies in London would accept him as a missionary. He traipsed round the various mission societies asking if they would accept him as one of their missionaries to go back and serve the Lord, but none of them would accept him. But C.T. Studd said this, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. He went actually to Africa, the heat of Africa, in 1910. And two years later, he founded the Worldwide Evangelization Crusade, which today has over a 1,000 missionaries worldwide. Because though wealthy, he said, this must come first. The work of God must come first. Uh, I have a friend who's um, on the board of General Electric, which is one of the world's biggest companies. And uh, he's an aircraft engine expert, and he heads up that department and so on. And he's at the moment living and working in China. And I was talking with him on the phone two days ago. And uh, he said to me how wonderful it was working in China And he said, uh, one of the directors of one of the other Chinese airlines was talking with me and he said, I've been witnessing to him, sharing something of the gospel to him. And he came to me, in fact, he phoned him up and then came around to see him. He said, I just want to know your God. His name's Jesus, isn't it? That's how he put it. I want to know, to worship your God. His name's Jesus, isn't it? Such a different picture from what we see here. But here is C.T. Studd putting Jesus first, like that man wanted to do. C.T. Studd said this, Let us not rust out. Let us not glide through the world and then slip quietly out without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our blessed Redeemer. At the very least, let us see to it that the devil holds a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure from the scene of battle. <laughs> That's typical CT stud. Lethargy was these people's problem. Not the time to do it. No, we won't do that now. Time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be rebuilt. The other L, I said there were two, is luxury. Luxury. Here are these people voting down this particular project, this particular building project, and yet they themselves were living in luxury. It says, um, Is it time for you yourselves, says God through Haggai, is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, the Lord's house, remains a ruin? The word paneled houses there is the same word that's used of the gold paneling that was in the temple. And here they are, paneling their houses. But God's house remained a ruin. They were living in luxury. D.L. Moody once said, in 40 years of counseling, he had never heard anyone confess to covetousness. John Wesley, who was a passionate preacher, saved this country from a revolution worse than the French Revolution. He had one text that he preached on more than any other text as he went around this country. You know what it was? Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. And towards the end of his life, he said, if I were to die leaving more than ten pounds, all mankind can call me a thief and a liar. I would be denying to others what I did not need for myself. So they were living in luxury, looking after themselves and forgetting the work of God, the need for repentance. But then th- there is in this chapter, in these verses that, of Haggai, the nature of repentance. I mean, in verse 1, it says, the Lord says, give careful thought to your ways. In verse 7, it says, give careful thought to your ways. In verse 15 of chapter 2, give careful thought to your ways. Verse 18 of chapter 2, give careful thought to your ways. So if they were to repent, they would need to give careful thought to what they were doing. It's not something they do just on the spur of the moment because somebody gives them an emotional or powerful talk like Haggai who comes along. He's calling them to think about it. Think what they were doing. In the New Testament, the Greek word for Repentance is the word metanoia, and it comes from two words, meta and noia. And the meta bit means after, and the noia bit means to think. So it means thinking around or thinking after a, an issue, to rethink something. And what, what God is calling these people to do is to rethink their position before the Lord. Think about it. Like John the Baptist in the New Testament, he said to the people, go and show your repentance by the lives that you live and then come again. In other words, go, sort things out and then come out. Think about what you're doing. And it does us well to think too about how we live. It must be thoughtful. And it also must be thorough. Verse 12 says in chapter 1, when the message was preached, they went up into the mountains and brought down wood and started work. They acted. They acted. They got on with the work they were told to do. Thoroughness was the key. Now, the thoroughness of this response was simply response to the word of God. They wanted to do what God had told them to do. And they wanted to do it thoroughly and well. In verse 8 it says God told them to go up into the mountains and bring down timber for the house, and then they did it. It's not enough for them to aim to do it. It's not enough for them to plan to do it. It's not enough for them to come up with a, a good scheme of doing it or have it as a target to do or have a vision statement that says that that's what they should do. What had to happen was they had to do it. Get on and do it. Repentance had to get to their feet and to their hands and to their sheds where their sores were so they could come and take them down and go up in the mountains to cut the wood down and so on. We can never push God off with half-hearted measures. He wants unqualified obedience. And in verse 12 it says, They obeyed the Lord because they feared the Lord. They submitted to God in worship and they surrendered to him in service. Then notice the speed of their response. Verse 12 says, when this message of repentance and putting things right was brought to these people because they'd given up on the Lord's work and they just sat back and looked after themselves, the very first word of verse 12 says, then, when it was preached, when the message was preached, then Zerubbabel got up and and Joshua and so on got up and did it. Soon as the message was delivered, strictly speaking, the work didn't start for 23 days. Compare verse 1 with verse 14, you can see that out, you can work that out. 23 days later, strictly speaking. But that just emphasizes the speed. The work had ground to a halt for 16 years. Message came to get on with it, and 23 days later, they were doing the work. I mean, ask Mark, how long does it take to plan? How long does it take to get things sorted out? The people who are going to do this and the people who are going to do that, this team will operate there, these people will deselect the trees, these people will chop them down, these people will cut them in planks, and so on and so on and so on. All of that sort of stuff, which we don't have to do. And within 23 days, they were doing the work. It's a remarkable speed of getting on with it. Even 23 days emphasizes not the delay, but the speed, urgency. It's like when Jesus called the disciples in the New Testament. We referred to it a few weeks back. Jesus called them, follow me, and immediately left their nets and followed him. Immediately, they left Zebedee in the boat and got on with following Jesus. There's a little saying that says, delayed obedience is disobedience." The time to respond to God's word is always now, now. If there is a sin to be dealt with, the time to deal with it is now. If there is a habit to break, the time to break it is now. If there is a confession to make, the time to make it is now. And so on and so on. Today, if you hear God's word, do not harden your hearts. That's the sort of attitude for these people. Speed of their response, the spirit of their response. And then notice, Haggai, though he was the preacher, actually it was the voice of God that they heard. It says it in verses 12 and 13, when he preached the message, the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord, so the, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people of God. They came and began work. They saw in Haggai's message, or heard in Haggai's voice, they heard God's voice. I'm not saying anything, well I am, <laughs> about preachers. But you know, what's the point of coming and listening to God's word, whoever is preaching it. If it is God's word, what's the point of listening to it and listening to it and listening to it if we don't do anything about it? And each one of us, preachers in particular, needs to say, What is God saying? I must obey, not just hear, not just fill my head, I must obey the message. A.W. Tozer, speaking to preachers on one occasion, he said this When you enter the pulpit, do you go up to it? This is your moment. Do you go into it? This is the work I've been called to. So let's get on with it. Or do you go down to it? Because you're stepping down from the presence of God into the people to share God's word. One Puritan preacher said, "I love to do, uh, love to go from the place of prayer to that awful place, the pulpit." coming from the presence of God to preach the word. What a privilege. And for every one of us hearing what God's word says, we should be saying, this is God's word. We should obey it. We hold in our hands, as we sit here, none other than God's word to us Sunday by Sunday, how we should obey it. And the sign of their response, they began immediately on the work of the Lord. But um, let me finish on a different tack. We haven't got time to look at the first half of chapter 2, but where the work gets going and how they reorientated their minds and they began the work. But what is it that will actually keep them going in this work? What will enable, this, enable them to fulfill the thing to which God had called them? How could they carry on with the work? And the end of Haggai just finishes with a lovely phrase that we're going to touch on. Verse 20 of chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month, tells the rubable governor of Judah that I will shake the heavens and the earth I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shaltiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty." They must have been thinking. It's all very well for you to call us to give and to work and so on, but look at the people around. Look at these enemies that keep attacking us. I mean, we might be giving to something that's destroyed in a month's time. They must have thought along those lines. Is it the right thing to do? And etc. 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 How? What would keep them going? The thing that would keep them going was for them to know that this was God who had taken them and he put them in that place and he would protect them and he would look after them because they were of his calling. So he says to them, listen, I'm making you like my signet ring. Rings, of course, are chosen today for all sorts of reasons. But here it was a signet ring. A signet ring, of course, was had a had a, a mark in it or a, a relief in it so that the king or whoever wore, wore the signet ring, he would... In making a document, he would seal it with a lump of sealing wax or sometimes clay and he would push into it his signet ring, from which we get our word signature, his signet ring to show that he himself had seen it and agreed with it. Only the king had the signet ring. So, to push that in showed that the act king had actually handled that document. And here God says, listen, I want you to know you're going to be like my signet ring. I have chosen you. You're mine. You're mine. Like in Peter, when it says that they were scattered, uh, strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, chosen by God. To the world, they were just strangers scattered everywhere. But to God, they were chosen people. And here... They were chosen people. They were like a signet ring. But it's a ring, not only is a a signet ring, but security too. Security. Uh, If it was on the king's finger, um, then the king must have been related to that person in sending a message to them. Wanted to say something to them, knew about them, looked after them. There's such great security in that. So knowing that the king has us on his heart and his mind. In Isaiah, the people of God were uh, were thinking, "Can, can a mother forget the child she has born? Can she forget the children she's given birth to? In those days, of course, life was cheap and many children died in childbirth and it wasn't at all unusual for families to have lots and lots of children because only a small percentage would survive. Is it possible, though, for a mother to forget the child she's born? Well, it's hardly possible at all. But it says, yet I will not forget you. I have you engraved on the palm of my hands, God says. You're like my ring on the finger. I'll never forget. So you can see? I actually don't wear this wedding ring just to remind me I'm married. I know that already. But as I look at it, it does remind me that I'm married. Secure, secure. And then it's a thing of beauty. A ring. That's usually why they're chosen today, it's a thing of beauty, something that we like to have, and especially dress rings are chosen for that reason. And when God looks around this world, the vastness of space and all those universes, and then down to the microscopic world, the things that we're only just beginning to discover, the, the very minute parts, and he scans everything he has made. There is nothing that he has made which is more beautiful to him than you, because you're part of his church. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? That we are so beautiful to him. We're the apple of his eye. I'll make you like my ring on my finger. And the last thing i just mentioned it reminds us of authority too. The message we have is foolishness to the world, but as far as God is concerned, it's the power of God unto salvation. And when we go out and we preach it, we preach it with authority and we're making Jesus known. And whether we feel that we're achieving a lot or don't feel we're achieving a lot, we're making him known and it goes with real authority. And so let me finish with Ezekiel. I am sending you out, says God, to a rebellious nation. The people I'm sending you to are obstinate and stubborn. But when you say to them, this is what the Lord says, whether they listen or fail to listen, they will know that a prophet has been amongst them. Because we go with his authority. So God speaks to us today as he spoke to those people of long ago and says, repent, put me first, put things right, put the work of God first. I know it'll be difficult, but I'll be with you. You're like the ring on my finger. Let's close by singing a little song together which just reminds us I give you all the honor and we shall stand to sing as the musicians play this song for us.